switch to the head mic, and we'll get that settled so you can hear clearly. I have a simple job to do this morning, to speak the truth to you in love, so that you might understand and believe and live what God is calling you to live. You have to humble yourself in this moment to listen, but to listen actively and to understand that it is not God himself speaking to you. He uses a sinner who has sought to do this well, but is no smarter or more articulate or holier than you are. This is how he binds us together as a family from among us. He calls some of us to serve all of us through the ministry of the word. So would you set your heart, be humble, be willing to hear from God through uh, an instrument of his. That's how preaching works. All right, we're preaching through the biblical book of Nehemiah. If you listen to what I just read, you know that this has potential to be a hard sermon. So be ready for that. The book of Nehemiah is a memoir of this beautiful work that the Spirit accomplished on and in the city of God, the city of Jerusalem. This godly man named Nehemiah pulled together all of the people, and it's amazing, but somehow they rebuilt really strong the wall around the city and then the life inside of the city. And here's all we're doing for these months. We're saying, let's take this story and let it shape our story of what it looks like for us to be about the work of building a strong church. That's how we're preaching through this. Okay, today we get to chapter four. One of you very astute, very observant Bible readers said to me the other day, hey, Pastor Matt, why do we keep skipping the part about their enemies? You've done five sermons now, but you haven't said a word about the, the villains in the story. How come you're skipping them? And I said, no, 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 we're not skipping them. We're just waiting to bundle together a few of these texts so that we can get a fully orbed view of how Nehemiah responded to his enemies. So that's what we're doing today. This is our aim this morning. How did Nehemiah respond to his enemies? All right, you can throw that one up. How did he respond to opposition? We're going to bundle these texts and try and get our head around this together. Okay, before I hit the text, I do this often with you. I'll give you some bigger principles that will orient you to hearing these words properly. Okay, two big principles. First of all, to allow me to quote a very esteemed philosopher, wordsmith, poet of the 21st century. Her name is Taylor Swift. And she said these words, haters going to hate, 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 hate. I'm serious. She said all of those hates. Uh, I almost know nothing else about any of the other lyrics in her songs, but she happens to be right on with this one. Anytime, any of us, whether as individuals or as a church community, get serious about Christ serious about grace and truth, serious about the advance of the gospel, opposition will 
arise. When I was in seventh grade, my heart was just alive to God. Um, And the church that we were a part of was doing a fundraising campaign for something. I don't remember what it was, but I just remember being all in on the gospel as a little kid, all in on whatever my pastors were saying to me. And so I wanted somehow to give. But I was in seventh grade, so I had no income, no job, no money in the bank, no way of contributing. So I decided that for the month of January, I was not going to eat lunch, and I was going to take the $1.50, that's how much lunch was back in my day, and I was going to save it and give it to the church. So for a couple of weeks during lunch in the cafeteria, I didn't eat. Eventually, one of the other kids in seventh grade said to me, hey, Matt, how come you're not eating? What are you doing? You haven't eaten for days. So I told him. And him and a couple of other kids, Demetrius was one of their names. I'll never forget it. They ragged on me the rest of that month for being so stupid to not eat and to think giving a dollar and 50 cents to God was going to change anything. That month was kind of lousy. But I look back at it as a great grace to me to prepare me for a lot of things because I learned very young that if I was going to align with Christ, having enemies who would jeer and doubt and just shake their head and oppose that would be a reality. Haters going to hate, 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 hate. Okay. Some of us don't mind this at all. Some of you guys are fighters. You think that Twitter is the greatest invention in the history of the internet. I can just go online and fight all day. I love this. Most of you do not love this truth. We want people to like us, to think we're awesome, to think well of us. Enemies means conflict, and conflict is messy. Um, I listened to a hilarious press conference of a basketball coach, Hall of Fame coach. His name is John Calipari. He coaches the Kentucky Wildcats. And he was waxing on all his philosophy about college basketball. And he was bemoaning the fact that nobody plays pickup anymore. The kids love to be in the gym by themselves, with the cones and the chairs and the stopwatch, learning how to do the moves. But nobody just goes down to the street corner and just plays pickup. And the only way to get better is to do that. He cracked me up because he told his son, Johnny, those cones don't have arms. What he means is his son Johnny wants to be a basketball player without actually dealing with the mess of pickup. If anybody plays pickup, I know me and Michael and Martin do, it's kind of messy. Guys smell pretty bad. We play at 7 a.m., so their breath is terrible when you're posting them up. Some of them have sharp elbows and don't know how to play, so they just run into you. There are hotheads in the gym who want to fight with you. It would be much easier to just play by yourself Pickup has sharp edges. The same exact thing is true here. 
If Scripture is clear on anything, it's clear on this. We cannot be gospel people and not have to deal with gospel opposition. Okay, now you think we would just know this intuitively, right? From the first pages of your Bible, God establishes enmity, eneminess between the seed of the dragon and the seed of the woman. The entire story of redemptive history is a conflict. When Jesus came, did everyone love and applaud and cheer him? He was meek and mild and gentle and tender and holy. But did Jesus have enemies? I mean, just spend 90 seconds in the Gospels this afternoon and you'll go, oh shoot, look at this. He is relentlessly opposed to the point of being crucified. You don't get crucified just because you pet lambs and hold babies and tell fables. Jesus came with a message that was opposed by the world. He had enemies. If you keep reading in the book of Acts, you see the same thing with his apostles, right? If I gave you a day to read the 28 chapters of Acts and I said to you, tell me about this guy, Paul, you would say to me, a bunch of people loved him and a bunch of people hated him. And I don't mean like, I hope he gets a flat tire hate And I don't even mean like I hope his dog dies hate, which would be pretty intense hate. I mean, I hope he dies hate. And not even just I hope, they tried to accomplish that feat multiple times. In the city of Damascus, he had to get let out of a basket in the middle of the night because they were going to kill him. In in Syria, he had to pretend he was going on a boat and then sneak out a different way because they were going to kill him. In Jerusalem, toward the end of his life, a bunch of assassins make a pact and they say, nobody eats until Paul is dead. This is like Liam Neeson territory right here. In Taken, I will find you and I will kill you. Paul had enemies. Okay, yes, to one degree or another, usually not that degree, the same holds true for every faithful Christian and every faithful church. There's no way around it. We've got friends who have a church down in Richmond, Virginia. They're doing a beautiful work of gospel advance. And we sent Rob and Patty down. Patty spoke to the women women there for a weekend about believing, adorning, and advancing the gospel. And they shared a meal with the pastors on Sunday and the pastor said, we faced a lot of opposition in the, in the city in recent months. And there's this new nickname for their church. They are the hipster fundamentalists. That's the slander that's going around in that city. Now, I kind of like that nickname. You know, they call Jesus friend of sinners, and it was like a slander. So hipster fundamentalist means, on the one hand, they're trying to contextualize their ministry and not be cool, but just be contemporary to reach people in their city right now. Fundamentalists can be a bad word, but it can also mean that they're just about the basics of the gospel. And so they're just doing the and they are now known as the hipster fundamentalists, and we need to oppose their work. Are they doing something wrong? 
No. They're actually doing something right. Principle one, gospel advance, if you give yourself to it, haters going to hate, 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 hate. Okay, hold that thought. Second big principle, and this is huge. Without this, this text and the teaching of Scripture on how we are to engage our enemies will make no sense at all. I'm going to do another pop culture reference. Is that okay? All right, here we go. In 1972, the year before I was born, an iconic movie came out. It was called The Godfather. I don't know if you've heard of it. And a third of the way through the movie, there was this fascinating conversation between Michael and Sonny and Tom, the conciliary, about how to respond to the attempted murder of the Godfather. And Michael says these legendary words. I can't say it like he did, you know, with the, with the cotton in his mouth. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. I am not vouching for the ethical grid of the Corleone family. That's not what I'm doing. But there's an important truth in here that you got to get. It's a distinction that we must keep clearly in our minds if we're going to talk about having enemies. When we encounter opposition, we are never to take it personally. Because when someone opposes the work of the gospel, they're not opposing us, they're opposing the God of the gospel. This is why Christians can really love our enemies personally, while at the same time fighting formally or publicly. All right, illustration. Uh, Who was the one person recently, political figure, who came out the most brazenly against the work of the gospel in the life of the church in the United States of America. Did anybody catch this? It's a guy named Robert O'Rourke. He's running for the Democratic presidential nomination, trying to run against the incumbent president in the fall. And they did a town hall, and he basically, in answering a question, came out and said this. If I am president, he didn't punch his chest, but he said, if I am elected president, I will see to it that the state, the government, dictates what the church can and cannot believe, practice, and preach. And if there are churches who will not abandon the good, beautiful, clear teaching of Scripture, I will work to put them out of business. All right, that's a summary. You can go watch it for yourself and see if that's an accurate recollection of what he said. He was a little more crafty and coy than that. But this is where he was going with it. I promise I will not allow that gospel in this country if I am president. All right, question. Let's say that Robert O'Rourke was coming up the Fells Way with his family, and boom, car accident right over here. You know that there's car accidents out here all the time. If anyone has any influence in the city, left-hand turn signal, please. Right out here, we've had two different accidents in the last 10 days. Last Sunday, boom, at 8.45, and Amy and Tracy beautifully loved on a couple, uh, this mom with her baby. And then I was here working on Thursday, same thing, boom. So I ran out, and these two women had collided into each other. And I went over to the one woman, and I just gently put my arm around her and said, hey, it's going to be okay. And she just 
folded herself into my chest and just started weeping from the, the shock of the accident. All right, let's say that we heard that and that was the state that this guy and his family were in outside of our church. How would we respond? I hope that everybody in here understands that we would go out there and we would embrace this man, we would embrace this woman, we would care for these children, we would call the police, we would offer them coffee, we would do anything we could to serve them, regardless of his formal public statements, because it's not personal. We are called to love and bless and serve everyone, even our enemies. Now, let's say that he becomes president, and Nick runs for office and becomes the senator from Massachusetts, Senator Sutera. We would want Nick to oppose him publicly and formally in all of his attempts to silence the witness of the church, but to love him personally and privately. Does everybody feel that distinction? We can't keep talking about this text if that's not clear in everyone's mind. They are not mutually exclusive to love our enemies, but to stand for justice, truth, and grace. All right, if you got those in you, then we can get into the text. Boom, 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 there's three. We're gonna hit them fast. Here we go. You know the story. Nehemiah heard that the city of Jerusalem was trashed and his heart was gripped with sorrow. And he said, I'm going to do something about it. He gets permission from the king to come back to the city to rebuild the wall so that the city can thrive. He is not in Jerusalem for 60 seconds before what happens. Opposition arises. All right, we're going to put the text in a summary because there's too many verses to put up here. So Nehemiah 2.10, Sanballat and Tobiah, did you hear those names? The text tells us that they were displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of the city. These are men of great power. They live above and to the northeast of the city of Jerusalem. They are thrilled that Jerusalem is in shambles. They are against the law of God and the people of God. They do not want to see the gospel advance in this city. They are against her welfare. Principle one is on display. Within 60 seconds, what happens to Nehemiah? He hasn't even walked around the city yet. And the haters are going to hate, 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 hate. And then also, do you see principle two in this text? Who are Sanballat and Tobiah coming at? Well, in a sense, they're coming at Nehemiah. But why Nehemiah? Only because Nehemiah has aligned himself with the people and with the God of the people. Do you see the someone in this text? They were upset, displeased that somebody, anybody, would come to seek the welfare of Jerusalem. In other words, whoever it was, they would oppose that person. If Nehemiah had never left Susa and never showed up in Jerusalem, did they have any personal beef with Nehemiah? No. Their beef is with God, and so their beef becomes a beef with Nehemiah, but it's not personal. All right. 
Second time these guys show up in this story was the second text that I read. This is when Nehemiah tells the people, we got to do something about this wall. And they go, we're in. Let's rise up and build. And the news starts to spread. The people are actually going to grab some shovels and some concrete and start building. And when we read about them in this one, it says, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us. And they said, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? But Nehemiah replied, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we are his servants. We will arise and build, but you have no portion, no right, no claim in Jerusalem. The big idea here is that a third enemy arises, but Nehemiah, who's secure in his identity and in his calling, doesn't get shook. I grew up playing stickball. You know what that is? Little pink ball. Steal your mom's broom, snap off the top, and now you guys can go play. And I remember one summer, my brother and I and Jason, we were a team, and there was these other kids, and we would beat them all the time, you know? And then they told me, we're going to get you tomorrow because our cousin's coming into town, and he's nasty. And the next day, we went to the schoolyard, PS30, and we showed up to play stickball. So we're little, right? Like, I don't know, eight, nine years old. This 13-year-old kid from somewhere else shows up like with muscles and a little mustache. And I was like, oh, snap, we are dead. That's how you're supposed to hear these words now. It's not just Sambalat and Tobiah, but now it's Geshem the Arab. And this was a heavy hitter, and he led the people who lived to the east and the south of Jerusalem. So when you hear this now, you're supposed to go, okay, it's not just enemies, it's enemies. Jerusalem had the Mediterranean Sea on the west, so now there is, they are encircled by folks who are coming against him. How would you respond when Geshem the Arab with the muscles and the little mustache shows up? You might panic. You might be like, we are in over our head. What are we doing? This is ridiculous. We just have to retreat and step back. But that's not what Nehemiah does. He doesn't get shook at all. He basically says, I have the God of heaven on my side. I have a clear calling to do his work as his servant. And you have no say in what we are doing. Did you hear those three words in there? You have no portion, you have no right, and you have no inheritance or memorial. In other words, what he's saying is, you have no past in Jerusalem, you have no present in Jerusalem, you have no future in Jerusalem. You don't have any true power here at all. He doesn't get shook by the rising up of enemies. Early on in the life of our church, when we were still fragile and small, or at least in my opinion, fragile and small, we had this terrible scene. There was this guy who was a part of the church, and you know, we didn't know if he was solid or dangerous or legit or sneaky. We couldn't tell. We were trying to figure it out. And uh, one Friday night, he sent out the worst, most slanderous email to everybody that he had connections with in the life of the church. Uh, Another pastor of ours 
his wife was pregnant with their fourth baby, and his life was built on fundraising, both to serve the church and to do mission work outside of the church. And this was the, the nastiest email because he called into question his character. He was cutting him. Um, he was um, jeering at him for fruitfulness in their marriage. It was terrible. And I remember reading this, and I got very shook. So my first impulse was to go over to Main Street in Malden and put him in the figure four leg lock and just hold on to that thing for a while. But it's not personal, so I didn't. But I remember being very troubled, like, oh no, the church is going to collapse. He's going to divide the church. Something bad's going to happen. People are going to think the church doesn't have integrity with its money. I remember being very shook. So I sought some counsel from a godly older pastor, and it was the best thing ever because he just said, Matt, relax. God's got this. Everyone knows that this man who sent this email has no standing in the life of this church. You have worked to establish a culture of fruitfulness, holiness, generosity. Enemies will arise like this, but it's going to be fine. Oh man, that was such grace to my soul. And when I came to these words of Nehemiah, I, I see this response in him. He speaks very clearly, very calmly, and he says, I'm not going to let you get me off course. God has called us to this work. You have no influence here. Talk to the hand. All right. Then the last verse that we have. What happens here is the people actually get to work. They actually start doing the work. The walls going up, the gates being put up, the rubble's being cleared. And this is what we read. It was terrible. Did you hear it? When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Psalm 2 teaches us that when nations, cultures, peoples set themselves up against the law of God, they don't do it nice, they don't fight fair, they're not real sweet, they are raging and shrill. Have you seen this before? So the one illustration that jumped to mind was, did anybody catch Madonna's speech at the march a couple of years ago? Did you catch that? She was screaming and shrill and just raging in her words. That's the spirit here that happens all the time. When he sees that they've actually lifted a finger to do the work, he loses it. He loses it. Feel those words angry and greatly enraged. He brings the whole army together, so like a bully, he stands out in front of them, and he's got his guys behind him, and he starts to taunt and jeer and rag on them. Did you hear the series of shots that he took at them? He says these words, what are these feeble Jews doing? What's that? He is calling them to doubt their ability to accomplish the work. Will they restore it themselves? What's that? Who do they think they are? Like they could actually get this done? What arrogance. Will they sacrifice? What's that? What, are they going to pray this thing up? That's what that is. Oh, they're going to 
touch base with their God and he's going to magically make this wall build itself? Will they finish in a day? What's that? They have no idea how big of a project they're taking on. This is never going to happen. Will they revive stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burnt ones at that? What is that? The world, the flesh, and the devil will say this to you all the time. Things have gotten so bad, you can never rebuild this. You're going to take those stones and that rubble and make something beautiful out of it? Never going to happen. It's too late for you. And then the mega punk in the story, Tobiah, sneaks in after him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, if a fox walks on the wall, the whole thing will crumble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you expecting Nehemiah to do now in the story? Once Tobiah shows his little smirky face and drops that comment, I am expecting him to take it very personally because that's how I would do it. You ever seen John Wick? That's what I'm expecting right here in the text. But he won't do it. How does Nehemiah answer them? He turns to God in prayer. He turns to God in prayer. And he prays what is called an imprecatory prayer. Have you ever heard that word before? It's the sharpest kind of prayer in your Bible. This is when someone turns to God and says, look, look, our enemies are opposing us and it's bad and people are being hurt terribly and we need you to act in justice. That's what an imprecatory prayer is. Did you hear it in there? Here's what he said. Turn their taunts back on their own heads. What's that? That's a cry for justice. Or give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. What's that? That's a cry for justice. What has happened to us when we sinned against you, allow that same thing to happen if they will not relent. Don't cover their guilt. Don't let this sin be blotted out from your sight. What's that? That's Nehemiah saying, if they will not relent, if they will not repent, you can't just let them get away with this. Look at the harm that is being done. Rise up, God, and stop them in their tracks. And why does he pray this way? This is what he says. Because they have provoked you to anger in the presence of your people. Everybody feel that? That's our second principle. Again, imprecatory prayer is not personal. It's not voodoo doll prayer. Hey, God, I don't like this person, so like, get them. No. It is a cry for the glory of God to be known and the grace of the gospel to be advanced and the suffering that is happening to innocent people to be lifted and the enemies of God who would silence and suffocate the law and the grace of God to be deposed. That's what Nehemiah prays. And then what does he do when he's done praying? I love this. It says, 
And so we built the wall. I love that. When we talk about enemies in the life of the church, please tell me that everybody understands we are not picking fights. Scripture calls us to not be a quarrelsome people. Scripture, scripture calls us. It says, black and white, if there is any way for you to be at peace with everybody, go for it. Do whatever you can to get to that place. We are not like Billy at the gym that I play with at two seconds into every single game. He's in a fight with somebody. That is not what gospel advance looks like. We actually just want to be about the work that God has called us to. And if that means enemies, then we're going to entrust it to God and be about our work. And the summary of that one was when the enemies arise, let's be a people who don't get shook, but who love our enemies personally and trust justice to God and stick with the work. We don't know how or when in his providence God will allow the work that we are giving ourselves to to be opposed. Maybe we'll be the new hipster fundamentalists or they'll find some other slander for the work that's happening in the life of our church. When that happens, let's be the church that loves our enemies. Will you do that with me? Let's be the church that is not afraid of conflict. We will not take our light and hide it under a bushel. The light of the gospel needs to go forth in this church. Let's be the church that entrusts everything to God in prayer. And let's be the church that's busy with the good work of the gospel. All right, let's ask God for his grace to get us there together. Christ Jesus, our mediator, you are opposed. If we're going to be honest, you are opposed by us. It is our sin that sent you to the cross. But on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. You personally loved us to the point of dying for us. I pray that you would birth in us that kind of love for our enemies, for those who don't know you, who oppose you. The real cry of our heart is that you would win them the way that you have won us. So hear my prayer for that. Father, there is also much suffering in this city, in homes in this city, in this commonwealth, in this state, because men have forgotten you, defy you, deny you, fight against you. If you don't find it in your heart to bring them to repentance, we pray that you would stop their work in its tracks, that justice would actually roll in our time and our place. We entrust that to you. Father, I pray that you would forgive us at any point that we have been ornery, had an attitude, been arrogant, been self-righteous, been picking fights and dropping bombs unnecessarily. Would you forgive us for that? Would you give us the spirit that wants to just be at peace with all men and be about the good work of gospel advance and trust your providence in it? I pray that this would be a part of our story. Hear our genuine prayer for that today and answer, I pray. Amen. Amen.